When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Today, the 16th of March, 1968, the My Lai Massacre occurred in South Vietnam. US troops killed between 350 and 500 unarmed people during a counterinsurgency operation. The victims included men, women, children, and babies. It was a complete breakdown in order, and is widely regarded as the most shocking war crime perpetrated by US troops in the whole of the Vietnam War. What made those men snap and commit those terrible crimes on this day in 1968? Well, I talked to Eric Villard, he's a historian at the US Army Center for Military History based at Fort McNair in DC. And as you'll hear, he gives a fantastic summary of what happened and why he thinks it happened. As I've mentioned many times in this podcast before, I particularly enjoy discussions like this and learning about the changes that take place on the battlefield and in military planning departments to try and prevent things like this happening again. He's very interesting about its consequences. If you wish to hear these podcasts without the ads, if you wish to watch hundreds of hours of history documentaries, please head over to historyhit.tv, our new documentary, Killing God, about the murder of Julius Caesar on the Ides of March, 44 BC, yesterday in 44 BC. That's come up this week, lots of people watching that. Thank you very much, everyone, for signing up to watch that brilliant documentary. I've got lots more coming up, so please go to historyhit.tv and check that out. In the meantime, everybody, here is Eric Villard talking about the My Lai Massacre. Eric, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the Tet Offensive in Vietnam. End of January, turbulent year, 1968. That's the critical background to this event, right? It is. And the My Lai Massacre really, in a lot of ways, comes out of those chaotic, turbulent, confusing days and months just before and during the Tet Offensive. The U.S. Army in January 68, they think they've got the better of the Vietnamese, right? The Viet Cong is suffering. What is their outlook in January 68? Yeah, okay. So if we're looking at, at say, middle of January, you know, before the fighting breaks out, before the Tet Offensive, there is cautious optimism that the trends are looking up for the Allies. 
there's nobody at MACB headquarters, not General Westmoreland or anyone else, who has any illusion that this isn't going to continue the war for years and have a lot of casualties, and there's no guaranteed outcome. But over the last year or so, they had seen a lot of encouraging signs in the various programs. And so the trend line were definitely moving in the right direction. And this is actually one of the reasons why the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese decide to launch the Tet Offensive is they were beginning to lose some ground. They were beginning to lose control of some areas in South Vietnam, and they wanted to upend everything. And they absolutely certainly did. This part of the country we're talking about is Quang Nai province. So this is in the northern part of South Vietnam, and it's in a zone called i That's a South Vietnamese military zone. But i was one of the most dangerous places to be in the country. Lots and lots of fighting. This particular area where My Lai was located is this kind of peninsula. And it had been under communist control since 1945. I mean, that's one thing to keep in mind. The communists were always really in control of these hamlets and villages. And so when the Tet Offensive happens, and this is 31 January 68, of course, the whole country explodes in fighting. More than 300 South Vietnamese cities come under attack. 90,000 Viet Cong and North Vietnamese soldiers invade Saigon, Way, and a lot of other places. So it is absolute chaos. Now, from a military point of view, the Allies get the upper hand pretty quickly. And from a accounting point of view, the communists lose incredible casualties, up to 40,000 killed in a few weeks. And they're driven out of most of the cities quickly, except for Way, which, of course, takes about a month. But the thing that a lot of people don't maybe know about this is one of the biggest impacts of the Tet Offensive is that the security in the countryside takes a huge hit because when the fighting happens, a lot of those South Vietnamese units, which had been out there defending villages and hamlets, they come back to the towns. They come back to the cities. And so there's a sort of security vacuum in many places. And so this is kind of setting up the context for me lying the operations. Following Tet, the Americans want to get the momentum back. They want to get the South Vietnamese forces back in the countryside as quickly as possible, start working on pacification. And so there's a real energy and pressure on U.S. commanders to make things happen. And that's sort of the setup for this particular operation. It was essentially an attempt to get control of areas where all the Allied troops had basically moved out. And so this particular area, this part of Quangai province, had been occupied by South Korean Marines, but they had recently moved. So that's like, on top of everything else, the troops had used to been there, they weren't there anymore. So from the American point of view, there was an opportunity, let's put it that way, opportunity to get in there, reassert control. And I think that's part of the thinking that led to this tragedy, this catastrophe, this desire to get back in. Come on, let's hurt the Viet Cong when they're down. Let's really put the pain on them. And so I think that was part of the mentality going and part of the reason these commanders and soldiers were so amped up is because they were kind of being coached to, come on, let's do the knockout blow. Let's get into the weeds on counterinsurgency. Like, what is a knockout blow? Like, 
Is it searching for weapons caches? Is it intelligence-led assassination? Is it village-to-village questioning? Who's Viet Cong around here? Like, what does that operation look like? Right. It's something, of course, the army and, well, militaries in general are still arguing about. But one thing I think to point out here is that Vietnam was a complex war that was operating on numerous levels. At one level, there were conventional big unit battles between regular forces, all the way down to the sort of guerrilla activities where a farmer decides to pick up uh, Old Springfield at night and take a few pot shots at the Americans and everything in between. This area, what we're talking about is, this is a good example of the problems of pacification. You had a number of hamlets and villages, again, which were essentially under Viet Cong control. The South Vietnamese government officials only showed up during the daytime, and they didn't sleep there. There was no security. So how do you get control of those people? Well, it's a combination of things. Part of it is you do have to figure out who's the bad guys, who's the good guys. So you need to develop information. That's where actually the Phoenix program comes in. It was not a CIA assassination program, like some people say. It was basically an effort to build a national database all the people in South Vietnam, and then determine, are they a secret VC agent? Are they simply a criminal? Are they an innocent civilian? So to do this, you need to, of course, question people, get information. And where the Americans come in is they would use cordon operations. So during an operation, the Americans would come in and create a perimeter around whatever village or hamlet that needs to be searched, right, and find out who are the bad guys. And this was going on a lot during this time in the war. So you would have, for example, helicopters flying overhead. You would have Navy vessels off the coast. And you would have a a number of units which would land by helicopter, surround a certain area, and then move through it. Now, normally, it was a South Vietnamese who would be doing the question asking partly because the language, right? But it's also their country. This is part of the reason why this melee operation was unusual, and it was unusual in a lot of ways. One of the reasons is in this, what was supposed to be a coordinate search operation, there were no South Vietnamese officials there to do any of the questioning, all that sort of thing that might happen. And so when Americans went in there, they had no way of knowing bad guy from good guy. Now, they'd been told there was a Viet Cong battalion in the area, the the 48th local force battalion. And a local force battalion, basically think of it as they're full-time soldiers, but they work for a district committee. So they're kind of like in the United States, if you think of a county, they'd be a county military force. A main force unit would be like a state military unit. So this is a unit that operated fairly locally. they wear black pajamas and stuff, but they're recognizable soldiers. I mean, ammo belts, hats, they don't look like just farmers. So the Americans knew that there was a unit like this in the area. So when they land, of course, you know, the obvious thing to do is look for people holding weapons. Well, there really were none because the VC battalion wasn't there. It moved around a lot. And after the Tet Offensive, it actually only had about 100 guys left because it had taken such heavy casualties. So it was actually broken up into like 10, 15 people over like 50 kilometer radius. There was no unit to be found. They were all hiding. So when the Americans go in, 
get normal procedure. You round everyone up. You usually have like a medical clinic, you know, vaccinations and you fix teeth and you play music and you entertain the folks. You don't want to make an unpleasant experience. And then you have South Vietnamese officials go by and get information and check ID cards and that kind of thing. None of that happened. The Americans go in, they're amped up. They're told there's nobody friendly in the area. Accounts differ, but some of them at least say that they were told that they had the authority to destroy anything of military value to the Viet Cong. Because these folks who were living in this area, they were supporting the Viet Cong. They were giving them rice, packs, information. But you can't just go around burning houses, killing livestock, and you certainly can't kill civilians. And so when the Americans went in, they were not supervised. And so this is the problem. If you talk counterinsurgency, this is not the way to do it. This is a heavy hand on steroids. And it's part of the reason for that. that they've just been involved in this brutal, surprising, weird Tet Offensive fighting when even supposedly safe areas were insecure and that there was fighting in the grounds of the U.S. Embassy in Saigon. And everyone will know from the extraordinary pictures of Don McCullen at Huey, the U.S. Marines involved in fighting. This was intense warfare. Were these soldiers, these individuals, had they experienced that over the previous few months? That's one of the sort of surprising aspects of this. No, very few of them had ever been in combat. So this is a unit from the 23rd Infantry Division, or the AmeriCal, as it was known, because it was formed in the South Pacific in World War II. So it's usually called the AmeriCal, even though it is 23rd Division. It was an odd unit because it was actually formed in Vietnam. It was cobbled together from other units and assembled in country. It had a predecessor where they took existing units, but by this time, they had three infantry brigades, the 11th, 196th, and the 198th, that were part of this division, but it had never traditionally worked together. And in fact, these brigades were spread out over a large area. And the force that actually that went into My Lai it was one company from each of the battalions in the 11th Infantry Brigade. So this is a cobbled together force from a cobbled together division. Also operating in a place it had never operated before. This is not their normal area. This is where the South Korean Marines used to be. And the Americans get permission to go in here. So on top of all those other things, most of the soldiers had not actually been in combat. Now they're reading the newspapers. They're watching the TV. I mean, they know the country is racked by fighting, but their own experience has mostly been booby traps and sniper fire. They'd taken some casualties from enemy mines and things like that. And that certainly wore on their mental attitude. But very few of them had ever been in combat before. And actually, I think that is a problem. Because if you're all amped up and you're told that this place is full of bad guys and you've never been in sustained combat before, I think the opportunities for dissident problems magnify. You listen to Dan Snow's History. We're talking about the My Lai Massacre, which occurred on this day, 16th of March in 1968. More coming after this. Catastrophic warfare, bloody revolutions, and violent ideological battles. I'm James Rogers, and over on the World Wars, we're on the front line of military history. We've got the landmark moments, 
understandably, when we see it from hindsight, the great revelation in Potsdam was really Stalin saying, yeah, tell me something I don't know. The unexpected events. And it was at that moment that he just handed her all these documents that he'd discovered sewn into the cushion of the armchair. And the never-ending conflicts. So arguably, every state that has tested nuclear weapons has created some sort of effect to local communities. Subscribe to the World Wars from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Let's put the world back into the World Wars. How did Hitler's sexuality shape his worldview? Why did the Black Death lead to the rise of the witch trials? And what are some of the sauciest scandals involving kings and queens at Hampton Court? I don't know about you, but this is the history I want to hear about. If you do too, then join me, Kate Lister, every Tuesday and Friday to find out the answers to all of these questions and more. Listen to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Tell me about those problems. What happens when those guys go into this area and come into contact with Vietnamese civilians? So when they actually conduct this operation, which again is unusual because it was all done verbally. I mean, normally these operations, there's this whole staffing process and you have detailed records of the artillery. What are you going to do? What was the infantry going to do? They just did it verbally, which is part of the problem because we don't have those records. So what happened is they basically landed several infantry companies in this general area with helicopters. And it's called Sanmi Village because it's a larger area that encompasses a number of smaller communities called hamlets. We refer to it as Milai, but there were in fact six Milai hamlets. The one we're talking about 
where most of this happened was MeLifeWare. And the one company that we're really focusing on is a company from 1st Battalion, 20th Infantry, that land near this Meli, and then they sweep through this community. And as this is happening, there's other companies going in operations other places. But this one particular company kind of breaks into platoons. Some of those platoons, particularly like the one commanded by Lieutenant Callie, just start murdering people. They're rounding people up. And these are old men, women, children. I mean, there's no military age males. Initially, there seemed to be a lot of shouting and saying, hey, you know, where are the weapons, where are the bad guys? But at a certain point, as they're rounding them up, they, in some cases, line them up by the side of the road. And we don't know exactly who fired first or who ordered it. And there's different accounts. But basically, some of these U.S. soldiers, some of these squads, just start gunning down these civilians. In other cases, and this was not widely reported at the time, they sexually assaulted some of the women. Some really, really, really horrible things were going on. And so depending on where you were in this hamlet, either things look pretty normal or if you happen to be 100 meters away, it was a horror show. So it just depended on these sections of platoons, but they end up killing dozens and dozens and dozens of people. And the company commander is radioing back, but he's not saying that there's any problems. He's just saying, oh, we're encountering light resistance. Things are going fine. I think the first person really to know something was wrong was there was a helicopter flying overhead, an observation helicopter. And the scout helicopter flew in lower, and Hugh Thompson, the pilot, looked down, and he sees these bodies, the Vietnamese bodies, laying in a ditch, and American soldiers are lying. And he looks, and his two crewmen you know, look out, and then they see firing and some of these civilians following. He's like, what the? He can't believe what he's seeing. So he actually lands his helicopter, gets out, pulls us 45 and aims it at the Americans there and says, the next MF who shoots a civilian is going to get a 45 to the temple. Now, he just could not believe it. And so he actually does where he lands. I mean, he stops the killing there. But he's got to get back in his helicopter and continue the mission. So he reports back to his superior almost immediately what he's seen. He's like, something terrible is going on. And so that was really the first indication. And keep in mind here just how fragmented the command and control system is. Hugh Thompson's superior is the battalion commander of the aviation company, the helicopter company, who is attached to the 11th Brigade but not really in their chain of command. So it's not like Hugh Thompson can get the division commander on the phone. He just has to tell whoever his boss is. And so when the division, uh, General Coster and Colonel Henderson, the brigade commander, do a little investigation the next day, they conclude, oh, no, a few civilians may have been killed by stray artillery rounds, but there was nothing really unusual. Of course, the truth is that up to 400 civilians had been murdered on this day in, in another area. But it was an absolutely horrifying experience. And some of the American soldiers who were in that company refused to take part. They just walked away. Some of them tried to get their fellow soldiers to stop. Others 
took part reluctantly because they thought that was their orders. And a few of them seemed to be really enthusiastic about it. So it ran the gamut. But the fact is, it happened and it was barbaric. Why did it happen here on this day? And was it unusual? And if it was unusual, why did it happen? It is unusual. Some people are going to say, oh, hey, you're an army historian. You're going to tow the company line. We army historians actually have the same standards of objective professionalism that any tenured academic does. The army does not tell us what to write. We actually have a supervisory committee who makes sure that we have our independence. So I call it like I see it. Why this? Why here? Why now? Again, I think part of it is the fragmented command and control system. When you have a cobbled together task force that is operating in a place it's never been before, operating over a pretty wide area, these companies were scattered in a lot of locations. And this is, again, an operation that was planned hastily. So, so all those things are kind of the setup. But there's still, you know, that question of there are other operations like this in the war and it didn't happen. I mean, it's almost never happened on this scale with this ferocity. A lot of people want to point the finger at Cowley himself and certainly I think deserves all the blame that's coming to him. But he wasn't the only one. And I think I don't want to psychoanalyze, but I think that when you create the conditions for chaos, you're likely to get them. And so this whole pep talk before they went into the operation, apparently the officer was like, all right, we're going to get in there and we're going to kick some ass. And the VC is on the ropes and we're going to keep them down on the mat and look sharp. And most of these guys never been in combat. So they're already a little apprehensive. And here they're getting this pep talk. We're going to go in and also, yeah, you know, we're going to shine because these companies in Task Force Barker were the best companies out of each of the battalions in the 11th Brigade. I mean, these are not the cast-off and rejects. I mean, this was supposed to be a marquee operation, but they're pumped up and going into an area. And I think in some of these locations with some of these groups, as soon as the troops realized that they weren't being fired at, it wasn't a firefight, but they have all this anxiety and rage, in some cases, probably outright racism, right? And you've got these people who you know are supporting the Viet Cong. They, they know that. I mean, they not carry weapons, but they know that they are. And I think at some point, someone pulls a trigger. And if you know group mentality, it's easy to kind of lose your identity if you're a part of a group. And if other people are doing it, then you do it too. And I think that was the fateful moment. You had some individuals who I think just didn't have the self-control and the leadership in place because it was a long war and this is a pretty unusual situation. I just think that it was just badly planned. And once they got down there, these guys wanted to, I think just wanted payback. I think they just wanted like for the friend that had gotten his foot blown off by a mine or concern the hate. If we don't clear this out, then the VC will maybe come back and kill me next month. It's hard to explain because it happens so infrequently. And this is something the Army is still wrestling with. 
And in fact, our center held a discussion forum in 2018. We did a public one, and then we did one at the Pentagon. And this was our office's idea. We said we want to do something on me live. Because, I mean, it's so awful, but it's unusual. But what can we learn from it, right? So we're still asking those questions. And ultimately, what is the evil that resides in men's heart? I don't know. I honestly don't know. But it was not a commonplace event. And I will say this, after Me Lie, the story doesn't come out for about a year. There's rumors and stuff. But it wasn't until October 69 when Seymour Hersh actually breaks the story, the public learns about this. And there's an actual reckoning. But after that, floodgates are open. And in the Army now, the Army Judge Advocate General, their whole branch is shaped by Milai. So in the Army now, every commander has a JAG, has a legal person by them. So before they make these decisions, before they execute operations, before they pull the trigger, they check with the JAG. They're like, is this right? I mean, I observed this in Camp Eric John in, in Kuwait, 2014, three-star general. He's looking at his big monitor and there's a predator drone up there and there's a single ISA fighter in Syria somewhere. And that general had to look at the JAG. The last thing he did said, is this a righteous act? The JAG said, yep, yeah. you cleared all the things. He said, execute, boom, bomb went. That's the difference that it's made. After me lie, the army has put these JAGs at all echelons because they realize they need the supervision. So as you've already said, me lie was a, a tragedy. It was a crime, but it was also a strategic event in modern U.S. military history. You've said the effects it's had on the U.S. Army, but what effect did it have on the U.S. public opinion, relations between army and the public, politicians, and eventually public support for the war? Right. Rumors of this were circulating within division for months and months afterward, but it hadn't risen to public view. And it's interesting, I've actually read some accounts. There were a number of South Vietnamese officials who said, no, no, that's VC propaganda. They were actively trying to shoot down the claims that this had happened. But when the story finally breaks, again, this is October 69, this is five months after President Nixon has announced Vietnamization. He announced the United States is going to withdraw from the Vietnam War. When Seymour Hersh breaks the story in October, the first U.S. units have already come back. Now, it's a small number, but the United States was already headed down the road of a gradual withdrawal from Vietnam. So in terms of public opinion, it absolutely created outrage. It didn't accelerate the pace of U.S. withdrawal. I think the main thing it did was it further enraged people that the administration and previous administrations had been lying. I mean, you talked about this credibility gap with President Johnson. Well, here something happened under President Johnson administration, not Nixon's, but the blame goes all around. And so I think it doesn't have an effect on accelerating the withdrawal of the United States. But it has, of course, a long-term impact because it really flies in the face of American society's view of the army in itself, right? We're not like that. 
you know, the United States Army has always been very proud that it strives for a higher standard. We don't murder and slaughter people like some other armies. So I think that was a hard thing. That was a hard thing, and it's still a hard thing to kind of accept. Unfortunately, it probably had the most negative effect on veterans themselves because after it came out, there were certain people in the United States, anti-war protesters, who conflated me lie to the war. And so when you hear these stories of baby killer throwing blood in veterans and they're coming home, shunning them, me lie contributed a lot to that. The idea that people who had not been in the war, knowing the story, they look at these people differently. And these soldiers coming home. Now, these soldiers may have not been in the unit in that area at that time. It doesn't matter how this would work. As a citizen, you're like, holy cow, something that terrible could happen. What must these soldiers have seen and done? And so I think that was probably the most negative impact is the public tended to kind of blame the soldiers just all soldiers. And I think it made the reception coming home that much harder. It's a remarkable story. And thank you so much for coming on and telling me all about it. How can people get hold of your book? So it is available PDF form free. If you go to our website, which is history.army.mil, I work for the United States Army Center of Military History. And the name of my book is Staying the Course. So if you just type in Eric Ballard staying the course, you'll find the link. It's a free PDF download, 680 pages plus. So it's a big one. You also can order it from government printing office if you want a physical copy. Go to the website and you can download it as a PDF. You can also find video of the Me Lai discussion that we had in Washington, D.C., where I'm on the panel. And we also had several JAG historians, and it was a really great discussion. So that's another thing to get more information about this. We could never forget, never forget. Eric, that was so fascinating. I hope you come back on the pod soon. Let's talk about some more military history. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you. Thanks, man. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, a bit of a favor to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. Makes sense. But if you could just do me a favor, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's a tough world out there. Law of the jungle out there. And I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work. 
Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout. <laughs>